You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And today I'm delighted to be bringing back guests uh, who made an appearance on the show a while ago. Uh, joining me today is Greg Poling, Senior Fellow for Southeast Asia and Director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Greg, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me again. My pleasure. Uh, it's actually uh, per the perfect time to have you back. Uh, as some of our listeners are likely aware, Greg is sort of a soothsayer on the South China Sea, really the person that I go to when I really have questions about what's going on uh, in in these uh, increasingly busy, intense waters, uh, which had fallen off the geopolitical agenda here in the United States for a while as the Trump administration focused on other issues in Asia, certainly North Korea, relations with China. But this week, I think it's safe to say that there is a good reason to revisit the South China Sea, particularly because the United States just unveiled a new position. And that's really what I'm hoping to dig into with Greg. And Greg actually just hosted um, U.S. Assistant Secretary for East Asia and the Pacific, David Stilwell, earlier today for a virtual event at CSIS. And uh, Secretary Stilwell dug into the changes in the American policy and what it means. But anyways, that's enough for me. Greg, I want to ask you to just tee up for our listeners um, just real quickly, maybe in a couple minutes or so. What exactly is the change that the United States unveiled uh, really on Monday and also earlier today? And um, why, why was this necessary? So the new policy is making explicit what I think most of us assumed was already U.S. policy, uh, which is that the U.S. endorses the substance of the 2016 arbitration award that the Philippines won against China on the South China Sea, which uh, it ruled not just that China's so-called nine-dash line is illegal, but that none of the so-called Spratly Islands are actually legally islands. They don't generate any waters. What that means in practice is that the U.S. will begin declaring any Chinese fishing or Chinese oil and gas exploration or Chinese harassment of the same by its neighbors in these waters illegal and again i think most of us kind of assumed that that was already policy but actually it hasn't been the the going back to the Obama administration u.s officials have called these things escalatory or destabilizing but they've always been careful to not call them illegal now they're going to call a spade a spade mm -hmm. and why didn't the obama administration do this because we did get the award in july 2016 but the obama administration supported the award but didn't go into the level of specificity that we're now getting in 2020. And, you know, this decision comes a day after the fourth anniversary of the July 12th award. So it's it's interesting that we've seen all this time elapse. Was it just a matter of getting lawyers at the State Department to sign off on this? Mostly, yeah. It, it, it was a, a pretty wonky distinction in that the U.S. isn't a party to UNCLOS, the Unconventional Law of the Sea. The reason that this decision was binding was because China and the Philippines are, and so they had agreed when they ratified the treaty that any arbitration decision would be binding. But that, that's not the same in international law as the merits of the ruling being the right call. Right? Just like if you go to a commercial arbitration, you're agreeing up front that you'll abide by whatever the ruling is, but that doesn't mean that third parties have to recognize it. So. It, it gets very wonky. I mean, the fact is it just wasn't helpful for U.S. declaratory policy to be walking this tightrope anymore. And so state decided to simply say illegal when that's what they mean. Mm -hmm. And we've sort of seen signs that this was coming. As you said, I mean, um, that, that's interesting the way that you put it, that it really clarifies what was already U.S. policy. But the way in which Pompeo and Stillwell today presented this decision 
suggested, you know, freedom of navigation or freedom of the seas continues to be a primary U.S. interest. But a lot of the framing language has been focused around preventing South China Sea claimant states and littoral states from rightfully exploiting resources. Um, and that's really been something the U.S. has taken an interest in, you know, calling out bullying behavior. We got statements condemning uh, Chinese behavior in Vietnam's exclusive economic zone last year from both DOD and state. So uh, that seems to be a bigger focus of U.S. policy today. Is that is that a fair assessment? It is. And this has been a progression. You, know, you use the terms freedom of navigation and freedom of the seas, but the, the shift from one to the other has been a gradual process. The U.S., going back to the Obama administration, I mean, well before the Obama administration, was much more focused on freedom of navigation and overflight. And that language came to be problematic because for a lot of U.S. allies and partners, they read that to mean the right of U.S. Navy ships to operate in the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. State Department and, and DOD have begun using this term freedom of the seas more often because it, it's broader. It encompasses the resource rights of the neighbors. And so this new change in policy, in declaratory policy, that's in line with that, right? It's saying that we're not just going to call Chinese restrictions on, say, U.S. overflight around Mr. Freeze, you know, these very narrow areas that we picked on before. We're not going to just call those illegal. We're going to call all the broad harassment of Filipino and Vietnamese and Malaysian rights illegal as well. Right. So is this something that the, um, you know, in your conversations in the region and elsewhere, is this something that um, the Southeast Asian claimant states have been looking for in particular? Because I remember, you know, folks like um, the former uh, Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir used to point out this clear distinction saying, oh, the U.S. just wants to have its military vessels in the area and we don't really care about that. So is this a is this a way to sort of get around that critique? The underlying effort here to broaden the scope of of what the U.S. cares about, or at least what the U.S. talks about, yeah, that's responding to a demand signal from the region. I'm not sure that that many officials in Southeast Asian countries cared about the specific language so much. But if this is part of a longer term change in the way U.S. officials talk about the South China Sea and respond to the South China Sea, it's going to be welcome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so let's let's take a little bit in, because I think I think many of our listeners um, probably aren't all that familiar with the specific findings uh, in the in the July 2016 um, award of the arbitral tribunal in the 2013 case filed by the Philippines against China. Um, so one of the things you talked about was that the the, the tribunal resolved that no features were um, in the Spratly Islands were actually islands, right? Which is why it's kind of intuitive, uh, counterintuitive to folks, because we talk about the Spratly Islands. But you want to tell us a little bit about the legal distinction about what exactly that means? You know, I mean, just I'm just talking about the basics here on what an EZ is, a territorial sea, and how that practically affects how, um, how navies uh, operate in this area. The first thing that we should all keep in mind is that when we say the South China Sea disputes, we're really talking about two different disputes. We have a territorial dispute over islands, Spratly Islands, Pariso Islands, Scarborough Shoal. And that's been going on for a century in one form or another, and the U.S. takes no position on who has the stronger historical claim. Then you have the second dispute, the maritime dispute, that is over the waters, the seabed, the rights of, of states to pass through them, etc., that really dates to the 1990s in its current form. So you have China's nine-dash line, which is, as, as the name implies, just some dashes on the map, in which China's claiming some vague form of historic rights. That is a major problem for the U.S. and everybody else. And then you have these overlapping uh, maritime zones, starting with the territorial sea, 12 nautical miles around every island and coastline, and then... 200 nautical miles for an exclusive economic zone and at least that much for a continental shelf 
which extend from the coastlines and also could extend from the largest of the islands if they could sustain human habitation. And that was the real key to that 2016 arbitration award I referenced. Uh, uh, the arbitral tribunal ruled that none of the islands in the Spratlys qualify for an EUZ. So that took the vast majority of the maritime space in the South China Sea off the table. It is no longer disputed. It belongs to the coastal states. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a little bit of a wonky question that is just a matter of personal curiosity? So back in 2016, um, so part of the reason we had this sort of unfortunate timing where the award gets announced right after Duterte is inaugurated, so Aquino never gets to actually see the thing that he really made the center of his foreign policy, was Taiwan's submission on Ituaba. And I know that at the time you were very much involved with, um, you know, checking out Ituaba. I think you physically went there, right? Uh, I did, yeah. The uh, Taiwanese government flew me out. Right, right. So the the question I have is, um, first of all, have I missed a Taiwanese statement on this change in U.S. policy? And how how exactly do you think this is going to affect the uh, Ituaba issue with Taiwan? Because the Taiwanese still insist that it should um, should be considered an island with an EEZ. No, you haven't missed anything. This puts Taiwan in an awkward position, but Taiwan was already in an awkward position. So the when the 2016 arbitral award came out, the Ma Ying-jeou government did very forcefully say, we reject this, uh, Ituaba, which they call Taipingdao, the largest of the islands naturally, is an island that generates an EEZ in a continental shelf, etc. Then the Tsai government came in and really worked to downplay that. So they, they, there was a statement in the early days of the Tsai government that endorsed that Ma government position. But that was basically domestic politics. She had to. The legislative yuan had already mm-hmm. passed a, a resolution calling for that. So mostly what the Tsai government's tried to do for the last three years is just keep quiet, right? Try not to be asked about right. its legal position in the South China Sea. This is just going to reinforce that trend because there's really no winning here for Taiwan. It doesn't get anything if it clarifies its claim other than to upset Beijing. Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm just, it, it, it's something that I think I'm gonna be keeping an eye on. Cause yeah, I think I think the uh, the challenge for Taipei is a little bit uh, starker after this change in US policy. Um, so moving on a little bit, um, just away from the, I guess this legal conversation and the distinction here in, in US policy, in practical terms, I mean, how do you think this is actually gonna affect the ways in which states interacts with Hanoi, Manila, Kuala Lumpur, uh, when it comes to, um, specific issues pertaining to the South China Sea. And I guess I should also add a Jakarta, given the um, specific mention of uh, Natuna Island. Uh, how, do you, how do you see American policy actually changing in, in the bilateral context with these capitals in Southeast Asia? I think the first effect is going to be on declaratory policy. So you're going to see the issue raised in not just regional forums, East Asia Summit, et cetera, but Places like the G7, um, the Quad, you know, with, with stronger language, reflecting this switch to calling Chinese activities illegal. And that's going to be welcomed in most of the bilateral context with Vietnam, with the Philippines, with Indonesia even. It might get a cooler reception in Malaysia. We'll have to see. Uh, that's going to do two things. right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to build pressure on China. In the short term, I expect we'll see Beijing reacting more harshly. Uh, but it's also perhaps going to encourage some stronger language from Southeast Asian parties themselves. And I've got in mind the Vietnamese in particular, but maybe also the Filipinos. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how, so, you know, like when it comes to the next incident that we're going to see, uh, let's say, you know, a, um, a Chinese survey ship entering Vietnam's EEZ uh, again, 
uh, or a uh, oil rig, Haiyang Shio 981, uh, makes a little foray into Vietnamese waters, or fishermen getting harassed uh, in, in the, on the Philippine continental shelf near uh, Mischief Reef, which, again, the um, which is interesting that Second Thomas Shoal and Mischief Reef get singled out per the award in the new U.S. policy. When these sort of acute incidents happen, should we expect anything really different, or is it really, again, going to be at the level of declaratory policy and statements? You know, the U.S. will issue a statement saying, we condemn China's bullying, this is illegal, we don't recognize these claims, or do you think practically there's more that the United States can do now to support these claimants in those disputes? When it comes to specific incidents, probably not a lot changes. I mean, you, you might get stronger language from the U.S. Um, and and for the time being, given the sensitivity of Chinese diplomats and COVID, you'll probably get stronger responses back from Beijing. Mm-hmm. On the water, um, you know, we might see things like we saw early this year off Malaysia, where you had first a carrier and then two uh, LCSs uh, sail by Chinese harassment of, of Malaysian lorries, but those will be few and far between, right? The U- U.S. Navy doesn't have enough ships to go out there and protect every Filipino fishing boat. Um, so I don't think there's going to be that much change on the water, although it does potentially draw a bit of a line on the most egregious Chinese activities. You can imagine situations around Second Thomas Shoal, for instance, where the Filipinos have a handful of Marines or um, you know, specific drilling operations at Vanguard Bank. Some of these issues that were specifically called out in Secretary Pompeo's statement, you could get a stronger push from the partner states to say, hey, you called this out, now you need to do something. And and failing to do so could be more damaging to US credibility than it would have been previously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we are having this conversation a few months out from an election. And again, the South China Sea has, I think, in general, fallen a little bit lower on the agenda than it was maybe a few years ago. But I mean, I find it difficult to really see a situation where, let's say, a Biden administration comes into office and revisits this as a matter of policy. It seems sort of irreversible to me. Is that is that your sense, too? Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, in this environment in Washington, there, there are no doves left um, right. on either side of the aisle, right? And so it would be almost impossible to imagine a Biden government coming in and saying, you know, China's claims aren't in fact illegal because of course, yeah, the, the optics you know, of that are just awful. So, right. And the Biden team probably already thinks that they're illegal that the Obama team did. They just didn't say it. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and so, you know, I mean, just, just a final question, I guess, is um, the sort of elephant in the room here for me, just looking at the broader way in which the Trump administration adopts um, approaches statecraft is, It's really fascinating to me to see the administration really do something to strengthen the principle that international law should be a prominent feature in statecraft, given everything else it does in the world. Um, So really, I mean, you know, when I look at the South China Sea and I look at this step, uh, you know, you have Mike Pompeo announcing it, the same the same guy who's, you know, taken all sorts of actions, withdrawing from the WHO during a pandemic, um, gutting the JCPOA. I mean, really, this is an administration that generally doesn't look to international law or institutions as having much value. Do you think, I mean, that creates any particular issues at this moment of time, the fact that the Trump administration is the one taking the statement and we have this broader U.S.-China geopolitical context where, for for better or worse, the administration is taking a number of steps that it feels are necessary to push back against Chinese assertion? How do you how do you make sense of that as a, as a long China Sea analyst? Yeah, in the short term, it's, uh, it's hard to deny that there's going to be some resistance, especially among third parties to this policy because of the perceived hypocrisy. 
Um, earlier today, Assistant Secretary Stilwell talked about uh, Chinese judge running unopposed for the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. Well, it's hard for the U.S. to call that out when the U.S. isn't a, a party to the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea. And But that didn't stop him from saying it. So I, I do think you're going to have in places like Berlin, for instance, right, or, or Rome, you're going to have people say, who are you to come in and, and lecture us about what is and is not illegal? Over the long term, especially if you have a change in administration, you could have this policy be more effective. Um, I also think this highlights the fact that there were two different um, impetuses behind this, right? There is a short-term political impetus that's focused on, on the Trump administration and the politics of being anti-China at the moment. But that also happened to align with the long-term interest of the professional civil servants who have been watching the South China Sea for years and see the strategic reason for doing this. The two just happened to come together, and the second one will outlive this administration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Greg, uh, I really got to say, I think we covered a ton of ground in less than 20 minutes, but really, uh, I have no other questions. Is there anything that you want to really uh, emphasize on, on this uh, policy change that we didn't get to in our discussion? So the only thing I think that's worth keeping our eye on for the short term right now is how this may or may not lead to some movement in Congress, especially on sanctions. It was telling to me that within hours, you had the ranking, uh, the chair and the ranking members of both the House Foreign Affairs and Senate Foreign Relations Committees release statements strongly supporting new policy. So you have a bipartisan consensus on that. We've already had sanctions legislation of South Tennessee introduced in 2017 and 2019. And this, uh, because of the use of the term illegal and the broader scope of it, opens up a lot more potential Chinese entities to the kinds of targeted sanctions you just saw, for instance, on Xinjiang. And when asked specifically about that earlier today, Secretary, uh, Secretary Stilwell said it is on the table. Mm. So I think it bears watching. All right. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, anyways, Greg, it's it's really great to have you back on. Uh, it's been too long, and I uh, hope to bring you on uh, sooner rather than later to talk about all other things South China Sea. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ankit. Really appreciate it. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate it if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.